Welcome back to Wired to be Weird, a podcast about the brain. I'm Ian McLaughlin, a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania, and with me today is Bo, a material scientist and person in possession of two X chromosomes. That is an interesting way to describe me, and uh, it is true, I suppose, uh, as opposed to Ian's 1X and 1Y chromosome. Right. And about a month ago, it was Valentine's Day. And I don't know if Valentine's Day is even a thing outside of the United States, or maybe even just like North America more broadly, but if you're not familiar with Valentine's Day, it's basically a day that I believe has religious origins of some sort, but has evolved to become devoted to romance and love in general, and a source of profound anxiety for many high schoolers throughout the country. Anyways, um, I may be dating myself a bit here by making this reference at this point, but if you've ever watched the show Beavis and Butthead, you might remember an episode called Spanish Fly. It was basically an episode devoted to making fun of a thing that some people legitimately believed in, which was using extracts from a green beetle that people actually believed was an aphrodisiac. I mean, I, I guess maybe some people actually still do, judging by how many purported Spanish Fly products there are on Amazon, like today. But honestly, I suspect there are probably some totally different ingredients than just the beetle. <laughs> but I, I don't know, that's probably a conversation for another day. Okay, well, before we go on, maybe we should define the term aphrodisiac. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, uh, good idea. From what I can tell, it's a term to describe anything from a drug or a supplement or a food or even music that's capable of putting people in the mood, so to speak. In the mood. Right, you know, in the mood for sex. Let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> okay. Okay, so obviously this little Spanish fly beetle isn't the only thing that's been purported. Uh, uh, as having aphrodisiac uh, properties. Many things over the years have been thought to have these aphrodisiac qualities. Uh, everything from chocolate, oysters, pomegranates, peppers, even asparagus, oddly enough. Basically, a pretty wide variety of things over time have been purported to get people in the mood. And if you look online, you'll see that some articles at least make an effort to provide some kind of sciency sounding explanation for why this particular supplement actually does work. Chocolate has phenethylamine. Oysters have deaspartic acid, or Spanish fly has a molecule called cantharidin, which, incidentally, can also evidently be used to treat warts and molluscum contagiosum. What's molluscum contagiosum? It's, it sounds like something from Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> it actually does. Uh, but um, as fun as Harry Potter is, I suggest you do not Google images that this particular thing. Okay, noted. Uh, but, you know, it's strange because, you know, whenever you see a supplement that claims they can treat, you know, all of these conditions that are totally unrelated, I mean, you have to be skeptical, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good reflex. And I don't mean to suggest that it's impossible for two or more conditions that seem com to, to be completely unrelated to actually share some physiological basis. It's totally possible. I mean, in fact, even probable. And on top of that, it could also be the case that one molecule might result in benefits for two conditions that aren't directly related at a physiological level. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's you know probably worth discussing another day. Good idea. All right. Um, well, some of these online articles that attempt to, I guess, legitimize their supplement, uh, that they're you know marketing to make you more virile or you know whatever, will even go so far as to cite a paper or two that have some in vitro experiments that show something like receptor binding or increased release of a neurotransmitter or something like that. And usually those papers were conducted by academics that have literally no awareness of their experiments being used to hawk supplements. Or sometimes there are papers that have even been... Wait, so maybe we should first define in vitro. Okay, so, so in vitro literally translates to in glass. 
uh, which is referring you know, to the use of things like, like test tubes or, or petri dishes to contain small experiments, right? Like how a, a type of cell might react to being exposed to a drug or, or a molecule of some sort. And that's uh, in comparison to in vivo, which is? So that, that's basically like an experiment occurring within the body as it naturally occurs. Okay, great. Right. Okay. So you were going to give another example of what some of these websites will also feature. Right. So sometimes the websites will, will show studies with animals who are exposed to a given molecule and ended up reproducing at a higher frequency. And, you know, I suspect most of the people who might listen to a podcast like this likely have a healthy skepticism of the supplement industry at this point. And if you don't, you really should, given how little they're regulated relative to the pharmaceutical industry. And regulation sounds like another topic for another day. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay. But, but without going too deep into that world, I think it's safest to have an instinctive skeptical reflex when you see supplement companies making claims like the ones we're talking about. Improved cognition, slowing down aging, and, and so on. And if you don't, then I hope you'll adopt one. Whenever a company, blog, or individual without a background in science is portraying one of their products as being capable of inducing a fairly general and just sort of broadly desirable effect... And then they refer to studies that weren't done in humans, you should default to disbelief as a protective measure. If not only to protect your wallet, then perhaps to protect your body from potentially unknown uh, carcinogenic content or, or toxicity more broadly. And even if that person does have a background in science, sometimes you still need to be skeptical because yeah. who knows what other incentives that person might have to hawk this supplement. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, so today we're not specifically talking about aphrodisiacs though, right? Right. So I bring up the topic of aphrodisiacs because it was Valentine's Day when I started diving into this literature and while maintaining a tenuous theme of Valentine's Day with all the trappings of a pseudo-holiday centered on, you know, affection and love and, and all that good stuff, I dove into a topic that sort of straddles the boundary between respectable and pseudo-science. So today, we're going to talk about some of the scientific hypotheses regarding how it is that humans find other specific humans to be attractive and compatible. Beyond the pair bonding and all that dopamine stuff we talked about last time, right, in the other podcast. Yeah, that, that's right. So, so of course, human attraction is a complex dynamic that involves our cognition and memory, as well as the social interactions and cultural influences, of course. And, you know, we discussed all that in a past episode about love specifically. So check that out. <laughs> right. And, so, and, you know, standards of attraction notoriously evolve and are highly influenced by, you know, societal norms. Um, and so, uh, and also, you know, of course, attraction involves our sensory systems. Things like vision and touch, of course, and, you know, auditory systems are all involved. However, the role that one particular sensory system plays has been fairly controversial, as well as a, a biological system that I bet will be very surprising to most people. And that's what we're going to discuss today. So maintaining that theme of Valentine's Day, um, I'd, I'd collected a few studies that focus on certain aspects of human attraction that are unseen, and unspoken, though by some scientists demonstrated via collected data from, from humans. And so first, we're going to discuss a hypothesis that suggests when we evaluate potential mates, one of their features of, uh, that your body evaluates uh, for you know, potential compatibility goes beyond their sense of humor or you know, secondary sexual characteristics like hair or, or, or height. Specifically, there are some scientists with data that suggest that you are likely drawn to people with a certain immune system factor involved in how our immune systems fight off pathogens. And to be precise, I'm referring to the Major Histocompatibility Complex, or, or MHC, 
which is involved in how our immune system recognizes our body's own cells and differentiates them from foreign invading cells. So this is crazy. It's not only like your friends have to approve this significant other and your family has to approve them, but your immune system has to approve them before <laughs> right. you can right. date them. Well, well, I mean, so I think they make the argument that it's just a part of how you respond to someone. You know, maybe like how we kind of get a sort of, uh, you know, a sense of someone. And you might say something like, you know, this person gives me positive vibes. You can't quite pin it down or put words to it. They just generally make you, you know, feel good. Okay, so it's kind of like what people talk about when they say instincts. Yeah, exactly. And again, this is just some data, and it definitely is not a scientific consensus. But, you know, if such a system really is an active component of human attraction, it seems like precisely the kind of thing that'd be part of our subconscious, you know, that people probably mean when they talk about instincts. Okay, so what else do you have for us? So after the immune system attraction thing, we'll go even closer to that border of science and pseudoscience to research into human pheromones. Okay, I've heard of pheromones, and I personally think there's some truth to pheromones, but oh. I know they're controversial. <laughs> so should we be bringing the same level of, of skepticism that we apply to aphrodisiacs as pheromones? Absolutely. Okay, so of course, let's first off define pheromones. Oh, right, so they're basically chemicals that are produced by essentially all social animals that are then released into the environment for the purpose of communicating some aspect of their physiology from, you know, just the fact that they're present in a certain environment to their estrus state, to their emotional states like fear or, you know, or aggression. What's an estrus state? It's, it's basically just a, a hormone cycle uh, that's associated with, with uh, uh, reproduction in, in animals. Okay, got it. So let's get started. Okay, so, so we're really focusing on the human olfactory system. And you know, that's a sensory system that enables us to both taste things as well as smell things. What it is, you know, when you boil it right down to its origins, it's chemosensation, right? Or chemoreception. Um, it's basically the ability to be sensitive to the presence of chemical structures. It's really the most basic of the senses and it's found in the simplest of life forms. You know, even bacteria, you know, quote unquote, communicate in a way via chemosensation by releasing substances into their environment that'll influence the reproduction of their fellow bacteria. Okay, so you did air quotes when you said communicate. <laughs> and I take it that you mean by communicate, that's encompassing, encompassing all the ways that bacteria interact with each other via the molecules they release. Yeah, that's right. And, and during human evolution, the olfactory neural epithelium, or, you know, basically the part of our body that performs the initial signals of chemosensation, it evolved as a specialized part of our body to detect and evaluate a variety of chemicals in our environments. It enabled us to engage in behavioral responses that are in our best interest, right? So, you know, we have an intuitive sense of when food might be bad for us to eat or when it might be absolutely delicious. And that, at the most basic level, is why humans evolved to maintain this chemosensory system. Right. If something smells rotten, you're not exactly driven to eat it. But, you know, strawberries are usually a good, inviting sign. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, actually, someone in my lab is studying what the differences in brain activity are when someone's exposed to just nicotine versus nicotine plus the taste of strawberries. Like an e-cigs. Exactly. And so when you look at the anatomy of the olfactory system, it's somewhat unique because there's evidence of direct connections between the neurons devoted to olfaction to the limbic and memory-associated circuitry in the brain, which may suggest that olfaction has a unique relationship with human mood and memory. 
So I've definitely seen people talk about that, particularly on things like perfume or cologne ads. Another great example of when scientific research is used in a way that, you know, perhaps stretches what the scientists themselves would claim in service of selling a certain product. But anyways, the term pheromone was actually coined fairly recently um, to, you know, as we discussed before, to describe substances that are released by animals that cause specific reactions in other animals. And this kind of a chemical communication takes place between almost all social animals, including ants and moths, to goldfish and turtles, snakes and kangaroos, and even your pet dog and cat. And you know, some scientists who study this system argue that, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, there's really a limited evolutionary advantage for animals to strictly communicate information only about their own species or sex. Okay, so when you talk about evolution, we have to get this clear because everybody gets it wrong at some point or another. You always say that things don't evolve to take on new traits because they'd be nice to have, right? So just because it wouldn't be an advantage to communicate more complicated things via pheromones, that doesn't necessarily mean that they actually do communicate more than just species or sex. That's absolutely right. It's a misunderstanding of evolution to think that new traits develop because they were the best trait for a species to develop in a given environment. Not that it's absolutely incorrect, it just sort of misrepresents natural selection. Yeah, so I've heard you say that the traits that we do see are the ones that are just good enough to enable a species to keep reproducing or to keep finding food. Exactly. Uh, but while that's true from an evolutionary perspective, thinking about how a system you know, would operate under optimal circumstances can be helpful when investigating how that system works. You know, natural selection is amazing in how certain biological traits emerge. So, you know, for example, imagine you're an alien from a different planet and you just abducted a human so you could study how its biology works. But, you, you, you know, you can't communicate with the human, you can't talk to the human, and you find the eyes fascinating, and so you start studying the proteins that are in the human eye. This is probably really telling of how Ian thinks about his experiments. <laughs> right. So, so yeah. So, okay. You're an alien studying the human eye, but you have no idea how it actually works. Well, if you look at the proteins in the human eye, you see some photoreceptors, right? They seem to have some specialized role of, of detecting photons. And it turns out some of them are sensitive to photons with specific wavelengths. Or, in other words, specific colors. That's exactly right. Well, shrimp have photoreceptors too but they don't have this big fancy brain like we have. They basically get a signal of light or no light. If they look at the Mona Lisa, all they can tell is whether the lights in the room are on or off, basically. So if you were coming up with a hypothesis of how these photoreceptors work for a human, it might help if you were to imagine that the most effective application of such a system you know, might be a more complicated visual, uh, uh, visual experience. You might imagine that these humans not only detect whether a photon is present, but that humans can distinguish specific photons from one another. And not only that, they might even be able to uh, detect complex shapes and, and movement. And given how much the human brain is devoted to deciphering visual stimuli, maybe these photoreceptors play a massive role in how humans perceive the world. Right, so you're basically just imagining how complicated the system could be. Yeah, and, and so, you know, when it comes to pheromone research, these groups highlight that, you know, in some animals, pheromone communication is used to identify specific members of a species, so, you know, representing a specific code to allow for individual responses that are a byproduct of that individual's specific genes. So if, if you think about that, you know, that's pretty wild. I mean, you know, just think about the possibility that some animals are capable of detecting information about their own genomes 
by exuding these chemicals. And, you know, no expensive sequencing, you know, technology is required. It's just a nose. So that's pretty wild. Yeah. Now, all neuroscientists accept that simpler animals, arthropods, like lobsters, crabs, and scorpions, or spiders, for example, to broadcast aggression, alarm, territorial disputes, or sexual information, they'll exude these pheromones. However, some neuroscientists argue that vertebrate animals, like ourselves, are more behaviorally complicated, and so their responses to pheromones aren't quite as simple. As Robin Hare stated in a paper from last year, there's some debate as to whether vertebrates use pheromones sensu stricto, or in the narrowest sense. Some argue that because of this increased complexity in vertebrates, we may need new terminology for pheromones in mammals. And on top of that, the primary organ that's considered to be responsible for processing exposure to pheromones, the vomeronasal organ, or VNO, and sometimes called uh, Jacobson's organ, is either largely vestigial or, as some scientists argue, basically absent in human adults. And by vestigial, you mean that it might have had some function in our evolutionary predecessors, but in us, it's basically useless. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, many neuroscientists will argue that the vomeronasal organ, which you know, definitely plays a significant role in other mammals, really doesn't appear to be even remotely as important in humans. You know, it seems like an interesting debate between sensory neuroscientists and the anatomical data, you know, make a strong case that it's not even remotely as elaborate or extensively connected to the brain in humans as it is in other mammals for which it plays a big role. But regardless, in other mammals, pheromones have been shown to indicate estrus, foster parent-offspring bonds, um, influence puberty, and even, in some cases, cause termination of pregnancies or alter sperm production in males. Wow. So imagine birth control by pheromones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no kidding. Pretty insane. And so, you know, again, uh, that research isn't in humans. But anyways, you know, as a result, a contingent of biologists argue that it's reasonable to suspect that such a system may be active in humans. And while it may not be the dominant, like, governor of human attraction, it may influence the complex processes underlying attraction. You know, when it comes to humans, the most widely studied chemicals are called androstene dienone and estratetraenol, um, abbreviated, uh, abbreviated as AND and EST, uh, respectively, right? So, so in other words, men produce AND in the axillae or, or the armpits, as well as in the, in the uh, testes, and it's exuded as part of our sweat and, you know, other bodily fluids. Semen, you mean? <laughs> yes, semen. And, you know, by the way, women also produce some AND, which is detectable in urine, and it's synthesized um, in the third trimester of pregnancy and converted to EST. But that said, the gender specificity of these steroid molecules that are, you know, purported to be pheromones remains controversial and kind of remains to be rigorously demonstrated. You know, the possibility that humans communicate using pheromones has been studied for decades now frequently performed by like collecting odors by having people wear like t-shirts worn over the course of several days, often focusing the smells on the armpits. That sounds lovely. Yeah, no, no kidding. And, and I imagine that the recruitment for those studies is pretty uh, interesting. Uh, but anyways, there are some papers that have purported to demonstrate that male-associated odors and AND specifically stimulate the ventromedial hypothalamus in women and not men while exposure to the putatively female-associated EST activates the dorsomedial and thalamic nucleus of men, but not women. Now, if you're a circuits person like I am in neuroscience... And who isn't? <laughs> 
Yeah, we well, should all be circuits people. Dude, I totally agree. <laughs> uh, but anyways, as a circuit person, when I see someone make the claim that a given stimulus activates the quote-unquote thalamic nucleus of men, you know, my skepticism reflex is activated because the thalamus is the home to a variety of nuclei and not just one. But their work was peer-reviewed and published, so we ought to consider this evidence in our evaluation of the literature more broadly. Okay, so as a scientist outside of your discipline, I feel like I should not only agree with that, but also explain to our listeners why. Basically, the reason why anyone should tend to believe that a consensus of a bunch of scientists uh, outside of their discipline is that when their work is peer-reviewed, They've, divided, they've devoted their lives to the things that they're studying and, you know, a lot of time and a lot of energy. And not only that, when they publish, their work is criticized by other scientists in the same field before it can be published. And the people who are criticizing their work have a strong incentive to find any possible problem in their work because their own work is also going to be similarly criticized before it can be published. So everyone is motivated to make sure that only good science gets published. That's exactly right and, and very well stated. And you know, while that doesn't mean that everything that gets published is 100% accurate, it means that everyone should be motivated to avoid accepting poorly conducted science. So anyways, there's some behavioral evidence in humans. The study suggests that heterosexual men rate the armpit odors of women as more pleasant when they're collected during pre-ovulatory or ovulatory phases of their menstrual cycle which has been claimed as potential means by which men can detect their fertility. You know, again, this is not roundly embraced by the scientific community. This is just some of the evidence that proponents of these claims have highlighted. And another aspect of, you know, putative pheromone communication that's sometimes claimed by proponents is that the menstrual cycles can synchronize when groups of women come together and cohabitate, you know, with some studies performed by a scientist named McClintock who proposed that odorants collected from armpits can drive this synchronization. She's also suggested that odorants from the breasts of lactating women can disrupt the menstrual cycles of women who haven't had kids. And so proponents will also highlight that uh, the breasts themselves likely evolved from what were originally sweat glands. Now, I should say that these claims regarding synchronized menstruation and the effects of pregnant women on other women have been strongly contested, with some strong evidence suggesting that the original studies conducted by McClintock were likely detecting what's really a mathematical phenomenon, whereby the duration and variability of the menstrual cycle makes it likely that there will be you know, some overlap in ways that may seem non-random, but actually are. Uh, but that's you know, a conversation for another day. So, uh, uh, continuing to highlight evidence proposed by proponents of human pheromone communication, there are some studies that claim that humans can distinguish each other from their odor, and more specifically than just each other's gender. Wait, so you're telling me that these studies show that people can determine if a smell is male or female, but then also more than that, like they can identify a specific person? That's what some of these studies claim and also using sweaty t-shirts, people have been shown to be able to recognize their own personal odors and those of their kin. And there are some studies suggesting that babies who are only a few weeks old can identify both the armpit and breast odors of their mothers, but not those of other mothers. Also, some evidence suggests that mothers can recognize the odors of their own babies. Yeah, I feel like that makes some sense. 
you know, I personally find some people smell better to me than others, and I always attributed that to pheromone-ish things. And of course, you know, if anyone's going to recognize some other person by their smell, you know, babies and their mothers, are, it's pretty unsurprising. Yeah, I mean, you know, agree. But do humans use this odor information when selecting mates, right, as you implied? Well, a paper from last year set out to evaluate if they could reproduce this tenuous evidence, right? First, they highlighted the, the supportive evidence, two studies in particular. One performed by Saxton and, and colleagues suggested that women who were exposed to AND, right, that supposed male-specific pheromone, would report higher attraction to potential mates than women exposed to control scents. And then the other study that they highlighted was performed by Joe and colleagues, where participants were exposed to either AND or EST, or, or, or a control scent, right, while looking at short animations of gender-neutral walk cycles. Okay, so basically they were watching cartoons of people walking in ways that weren't overtly gendered, like no hip swaying or, you know, ground pounding. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly right. And, and this is, you know, what the study found. The data they collected that suggest that heterosexual males were more likely to assign femaleness to the stimuli when exposed to EST, while heterosexual females and homosexual males were more likely to assign maleness to those animations when exposed to AND. That's pretty cool. So basically the study showed that exposure to molecules that are supposedly either male or female specific is able to signal, uh, which is basically what is basically like the other gender that someone might find attractive. Yeah, I think that's sort of the implicit argument behind these studies. And, uh, and so then the team decided if they could extend that evidence by examining the effects of these potential hormones on how humans perceive facial gender, attractiveness, as well as unfaithfulness via exposure to these chemicals. And so what they did was expose participants to a gender neutral face that was created by morphing male and female faces together. That's sort of like the apps that can turn your face into the opposite sex. So I can see what I'd look like if I was male, and then the software morphs that with my normal face, and then you get a gender-neutral face? Yeah, I mean, so, so the second is uh, more like what we're talking about. And, and so the team's hypothesis um, was if participants were exposed to the image while also being exposed to AND, that you know, putative male-associated chemical, then they'd be more likely to grade the faces as male, and the opposite with EST and females. And so similar types of questions, or, or uh, for attractiveness, right, um, they were asked to rate the faces as potential mates. And they had a pretty large number of people in each experiment, and they basically found no significant effects of AND or EST on the ability to identify sex or their likelihood to rate as potential mates. So in other words, the team found that exposure to AND or EST had no effect on the participants. Huh. So their study basically contradicts the findings of the other groups and suggests that the supposedly male or female specific molecules, uh, you know, don't really signal anything beyond what our eyes are telling us. And right, right. And, you know, it's, it's important to keep in mind that there's really not a whole ton of rigorously performed science on this question. A lot of it is fairly limited. And so, given that this study was performed a bit more rigorously, it's clearly not a ringing endorsement of the claims that pheromones play a major role. But, you know, then again, it's just one study. Okay, so are there any more supportive studies that you found that show a positive role uh, in pheromones and attraction? Yeah, so, so another study that was 
focused on an interestingly specific social dynamic uh, from last year evaluated whether exposure to the male-associated A-N-D scent was capable of influencing the drinking behavior of women. That's interesting. So basically, whether or not women drank more or less when exposed to odors associated with males. Right. And so in the past, the same group showed that when men were exposed to the female-associated scent, their drinking behavior changed, with men drinking more after being exposed to the odor. And so this study did the inverse, right, exposing 103 females to either A-N-D or a control odor. And it turned out that women who were exposed to the scents that contained the A-N-D tended to drink a bit more than those who were exposed to the control. And by the way, you know, they were drinking non-alcoholic beer, uh, which, you know, of course, is pharmacologically quite different compared to uh, actual beer. But the authors suggest that this may be revealing a hidden pathway that operates in both males and females that influences alcohol use. They suggest that in the U.S., the population-wide ramp-up of drinking uh, that tends to happen during adolescence may be influenced by these subtle or, or at least unseen biobehavioral dynamics that become activated during puberty. And so, given the fact that many people begin drinking at around this age, there may be a set of social and, and biological factors that become associated with sexual interactions. So they're basically arguing that we kind of get used to associating alcohol with romantic interactions during our teenage years. Mm -hmm. And then we basically grow to unconsciously associate drinking alcohol with the feelings that we get when we're exposed to the sense of the opposite sex. Yeah, I mean, th that's basically what the researchers imply. And this, by the way, is only applying to heterosexual individuals. Also, it's worth noting that um, the difference wasn't particularly massive, and the participants were basically sitting in a lab being exposed to smells. And, you know, that's pretty far detached from normal exposure to odors. I mean, it, you know, it's not like, you know, when you're at a party or a bar or, or, or dinner with someone, you're just like sitting there smelling them, right? So, you know, stipulating the various limitations of this kind of a study, you know, it's another data set for us to consider. And so, if you recall from the beginning, I brought up a potential role of our immune system in mate selection. Right. That was the craziest part of what you said was involved. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so too. And so it turns out that other animals tend to select mates in a way that tends to favor what's called MHC dissimilarity. And you obviously have to review what MHC means. Yeah, of course. So, so in other words, animals will tend to be more attracted to other potential mates who have MHC proteins that are different from theirs. And, and right, to, to review, the MHC, or Major Histocompatibility Complex, is encoded by genes um, that are responsible for the immune system recognizing proteins from foreign sources. Every cell in your body displays a variety of little proteins on their surfaces, and some of those little proteins are monitored by your immune system because immune system cells are constantly passing by them. If they detect that a foreign cell with proteins sticking off the surface of the cells then they attack and begin an immune system reaction. And so this is basically how your immune system is able to avoid attacking your own body. And it turns out that the MHC part of our genome is very polymorphic, meaning that it comes in many different flavors throughout the population. There are you know, different theories for why it's so diverse and it gets into evolutionary weeds. Sounds again like another topic for another day. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think so. But well, you know, what's relevant for this conversation right now are, are some of the theories as to why we might be interested in people who have a different set of genes that code for our MHCs. 
And so, so one of these theories is, you know, perhaps genomic variability is maintained by the fact that heterozygotes or animals that have two parents with different genes for any given protein, you know, rather than the same, like what had happened if siblings mated, you know, like, like Jamie and Cersei Lannister, for example, they, they tend to have an immune system advantage, right? Because they'd have more types of MHC proteins. So they could theoretically react to a wider variety of potential invaders, you know, like viruses and, and bacteria. So in other words, they'd have a more versatile um, immune system. So this is just another good reason to not have incest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just another one. Just another one. <laughs> but, you know, I also think of this kind of as, you know, opposites attract. Uh, and really what you're saying is if one person has a certain set of immune system genes and then they have babies with a person who has a different set of immune system genes, then their offspring are, you know, will be better able to defend themselves potentially against a wider array of things that might infect them, you know, the bacteria and the viruses and the blah out in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and that's one theory. It's like an evolutionary arms race where pathogens and vertebrates both have to keep rapidly evolving to compete with one another. You know, pathogens that mutate very rapidly are able to spread more rapidly, which is why, by the way, this particular strain of the flu recently uh, was reported to be killing thousands of people a week. It's a very rapidly evolving strain of, of the flu. And not only that, but there are multiple strains of the flu virus attacking us at any one time. So even if you might be able to respond to one of the strains of the influenza virus that are active, this one in particular may mutate in a novel way that many people simply can't adapt to. And so from an evolutionary perspective, if pathogens like the influenza virus keep attacking a certain group of humans, then the humans who are fortunate to survive the invasion are simply more likely to have a diverse set of MHC genes. And another sort of similar hypothesis that, that's kind of related, but approached from a different perspective, focuses on the MHC proteins, specifically being maintained by sexual selection, where it's not necessarily a direct effect of pathogens on our evolution, but rather that we just evolved other systems that made us more sexually attracted to people with dissimilar MHC genes to our own. So this would have the same effect. Uh, you know, of making for very diverse genes, right, for, for the MHC. But also, by the way, it would suggest that people with very rare MHC genes would be the most attractive. Now, that sounds more like what we've been talking about here. That's right. And so, you know, we can get pretty deep into the evolutionary um, biology here and, and how it influences the brain. But, you know, suffice it to say that it's not quite as simple as, you know, just the people with the most diverse and rare MHC genes are the most attractive, right? But if we look back to our you know, lovely olfactory system, there has been a theory for several decades now, since 1995, in fact, that humans are capable of picking up on the MHC genes of others by smell alone. Well, that's great news. So I don't need a fancy schmancy lab to measure someone's potential <laughs> MHC genetic compatibility. Genetic, <laughs> right, I just have to smell them. Well, okay, I won't go so far there yet. <laughs> and so, so a scientist named uh, Wiedekind uh, performed many of these early studies. And so one involved asking a group of women to rate body odors of similarly aged men, again, using their t-shirts while sleeping to collect the odors. Which, honestly, I just really don't think of smelling t-shirts as super exciting. I mean, I totally get that. And, you know, it's not the first thing I think of when it comes to females, right? Smelling their sweaty shirts, but, you know, maybe a problem with the methodology. But, you know, they're considering if body odor has an effect after all, right? You know, I think women have it worse if they just smell men's sweaty shirts. <laughs> well, I may arguably, I don't know. <laughs> 
So uh, about 50 men and 50 women participated, with about half the women taking hormonal birth control. Interestingly, it turned out that the menstrual cycle appeared to play a role in preferences. How interesting. But, you know, of course, that makes sense. You know, I've certainly noticed that during certain times of my cycle, I am more attracted to men than at other times of my cycle. Okay, and, and so their data kind of experimentally corroborates that. And so in this study, women who weren't on birth control tended to rate the odors of men with MHC proteins that were the least similar to their own as being the most pleasant. And the smell of men with different MHC proteins reminded them of their current or previous mate's smell more frequently than the odors of men whose MHC proteins were more similar to their own. So basically, women who weren't taking birth control pills uh, which basically work by altering levels of hormones that are involved in getting pregnant and growing a baby, preferred the smells of guys who were the most different. That's right. And so again, interestingly, women who were on birth control tended to prefer the smell of MHC similar men. And this is something they observed exhibited by pregnant women as well. Huh. Okay. So the finding is that the women who took birth control had preferences that were sort of similar to those of already pregnant women. Mm -hmm. And that preference was for guys whose MHC molecules were more similar to themselves. And then women who aren't on birth control tended to prefer the odors of guys whose MHC molecules were different. So basically, it's like your birth control is working on a whole nother level. <laughs> and it's just going super meta on you. And <laughs> even guys that you would normally find attractive... You don't. Super meta birth control. Yeah. <laughs> right. <clears throat> well, so that, that's what their data said. Um, however, this study has been criticized for priming smellers by using nasal sprays, as well as being encouraged to read a, like, a super awesome novel, by the way, that I actually loved called Perfume by Patrick Suskind. Basically, potentially putting the people in the mood in a kind of artificial way. Yeah, exactly. However, uh, Vitakind... Uh, followed up with a study two years later, and, and um, the, the group found that both women who weren't on birth control, as well as men, both rated odors of MHC dissimilar subjects as more attractive. And, once again, women who were on birth control rated MHC similar odors as more pleasant. And then another set of experiments that, that were published in 2003, headed up by a scientist named Thornhill, or Thornhill, evaluated relationships between body odor, MHC proteins, and facial attractiveness. They observed that there was a preference for female odors that correlated with MHC dissimilarity among male smellers, but females actually didn't exhibit this preference at all. Okay, that's getting weirder. <laughs> so it wasn't just that they preferred the odors of people with different MHC proteins, but that they also rated the faces of other people as more attractive if they had different MHC proteins. Yeah, and then a study out of Brazil in 2005 suggested that women who were rating male odors that were more similar to their own, they rated them as being basically indifferent. You know, not good, not bad, just sort of meh. Kind of like your brother. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. So, and, and then after that, in 2008, a group headed up by Roberts tested participants twice with about 100 men and 100 women who were sequenced at, at different MHC-related genes. And so interestingly, about half of the females began using hormonal contraception about two weeks after the first test. And the Roberts group found that there was a significant shift in the preference among birth control uh, pill users in a way that tended to prefer MHC-similar men. 
corroborating past uh, studies. And so they, they didn't detect any other significant effect, though, which actually contradicts past studies. And then another group in Germany in 2006 decided to see if they could detect any EEG signals that would associate with either you know, similar or different MHC proteins. And so it turned out that MHC similar samples tended to be processed more rapidly, generating larger EEG potentials than MHC dissimilar samples. And then additionally, men who were uh, smelling the odors from other men tended to activate frontal regions more rapidly, while women smelling the odors of other women tended to activate parietal areas more rapidly. So are you saying that it's easier for the brains of males to respond to smells that are most similar to them? I mean, so that is actually what the German team suggests, that, that faster and larger responses to odors of MHC similar people suggest that it may be part of a system that evolved you know, to make it very easy for us to detect if someone is closely related to us, you know, helping us to avoid inbreeding again, right? Or incest. Now, there are a bunch of other studies that tease this point this way or that way, sometimes corroborating the original claims by Vedekind, but perhaps in response to the proliferation of colognes and perfumes that have purported, you know, human pheromones in them to help boost your attractiveness, a group headed up by Malinsky and Vedekind, that OG human MHC odor scientist, they tested correlations between perfume preferences and MHC proteins. So not just body odors, uh, just odor preferences in general. Yes, exactly. So, you know, what they did is they, ba they basically sent a bunch of, uh, you know, like essential oils and, and stuff like that to a group of people asking them whether they'd like to wear the scent themselves or if it would be suitable for their partners. And so the, the hypothesis, of course, was, was that, um, you know, perhaps MHC status would be consistent. You know, perhaps people with similar MHC proteins would tend to favor similar types of odors. That wasn't the case, however. Uh, they did uh, find an effect where people with uh, similar MHC proteins tended to prefer scents for themselves. Okay, just strange. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty strange hypothesis and test in general, and, you know, a pretty strange finding. And, and next, the Roberts group evaluated if there might be any relationship between MHC uh, uh, proteins and facial preferences. So, so in other words, if a guy has a very different MHC uh, uh, protein to a woman, is she more likely to rate that male as a potential mate? Well, it turned out that the study uh, suggested that that was the case. And this was particularly the case as scientists were asking if they'd consider a given face as a long-term partner. Okay, so they're implying that a person's given MHC molecules have correlations with things that are involved in attraction that go beyond just odor preferences. Things like physical attraction or um, attraction to other specific physical features. Yeah, that, that's basically, yeah, that's right. But when the group that was headed up by Thornhill asked um, a similar kind of question, they found no significant effect of MHC similarity or difference on uh, facial preferences. And then another set of experiments suggested that men who were more heterozygous or, or, or more um, genetically diverse, you know, at the genes that encode for MHC proteins, they tended to be rated as more attractive compared to, to uh, men who were more homozygous at MHC-related genes. However, once again, other studies, one of which was conducted in South Africa with a different population sample than Thornhill's, that study was unable to corroborate that finding. So pretty inconclusive if there's a relationship here. Yeah, exactly. I definitely agree. And, and one source of skepticism uh, you know, uh, of the negative findings has, has emerged from the role that society has played in how we use deodorants and perfumes in general to mask our chemosensory communication. 
Right, it's definitely pretty common in the US for people to wear things that mask their natural musks. So there are entire aisles in drugstores that are devoted to the smorgasbord of deodorants and scented lotions and scented soaps and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, in pursuit of that, right, to tease out that question, a study performed with a group of Hutterite couples, and, and Hutterites are, are a group of people who share religious beliefs and, and culture, you know, who tend to find mates within their social community. Like the Amish? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, sort of like that. And, uh, this study um, uh, basically found that there was a lower frequency of identical MHC proteins compared to what would be expected, right? Suggesting that there may be a selection that's taking place that's influenced by MHC. However, a study performed with native people from the Amazon found that there was no such departure from what would be expected if MHC proteins played, you know, no role. So, once again, we're left with inconclusive and uncorroborated claims regarding just how important MHC and pheromone communication is to mate selection. So, where does that leave us? Well, there, there's certainly not enough evidence to justify the purchase of products that purport to contain pheromones so that they'll you know, help you find mates. Definitely not enough evidence for that. However, is there enough evidence to suggest that humans at least synthesize and, and, and release sex-specific steroid molecules that might have functioned a bit like pheromones before human society evolved to the extent that it has? Perhaps, you know, though not necessarily. Yeah, it kind of seemed like for every study that found an effect, there was another study that didn't find an effect. Yeah, and, and there's unquestionably a fairly significant degree of unconscious interactions between people who are attracted to one another, you know, including things like an involuntary pupil dilation or, or gestures or, or sweating or, or blushing, right? All this stuff that happens when you're near someone you find attractive. However, some of the studies definitely seemed you know, like they were trying to compose a sort of simple narrative of how odor and pheromones guide human behavior. So, uh, for example, there is a claim in one of the papers I read for this, and, and it goes like this. The sperm of several mammals express olfactory receptors, and they're involved in how sperm move through their environment. Spare, uh, S-P-E-H-R. Uh, you know, a scientist writes, quote, Olfactory receptors may guide us not only to the correct choice of sexual partner, but may also guide our gametes to fertilization. End quote. <laughs> so, you know, from my bit of reading on this topic, I think that's way too broad of a claim, given how the evidence just doesn't seem to support such a central role played by our olfactory system in guiding, you know, attraction or, or mating. You know, it may very well be the case that in the past, perhaps it did play a major role, but it may just be one of those things that we've evolved beyond, stepping aside to allow other aspects of our consciousness to take the wheel of attraction and love. Well, that's... I guess it's kind of a letdown. There's no clickbaity findings, just sort of inconclusive. Yeah, you know, and sometimes that's, you know, where science leads. Or maybe it's just that the right set of experiments remain to be done to detect the subtle role that our olfactory system plays in guiding human attraction. Definitely possible. But until those experiments are done, we'll have to be satisfied with what the data suggest. If those experiments are performed, though, and there are interesting findings, we'll of course discuss the topic again then. So until that possible future time, thank you everyone for listening. And if you've made it this far, we would love a nice little iTunes rating. Yes, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>